chapter 5, in verse 8, we arrive in, uh, and what I want to do first and foremost is get to um, what is the first, uh, we want to review last week. So if I can get that first slide. Uh, we have in chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, just a quick review, the title deed for the world is up for grabs. And that title deed is what allows God, through Jesus Christ, to redeem the entire earth. Romans chapter 8 says creation groans to redeem the title earth. And, and excuse me, the, the, the creation groans because of sin. But then also, um, what we talked about was the year of redemption. And I don't know that I did a great job, but I want to sum it up. Uh, on the screen for you there, I have, it's the year of redemption for the world in heaven. And if no one redeems it, then it, it stays with its new owner. That's the bad news, because we looked at last time how Satan actually, because of his temptation to Eve and then to Adam, that, that the title deed to the earth was forfeited and that Jesus Christ is coming to redeem it. It was forfeited to Satan. They listened to Satan instead of God, and he forfeited, Adam and Eve did, the, the right to rule and reign on the earth and gave it to Satan. But in the year of redemption, this, this land, if you will, or this world, uh, the original owner or the kinsman redeemer is able to buy it back. And Jesus not only redeemed human souls, but he also redeemed the earth through his death for sin. So they come, if in that day, if they were going to redeem property, they would break the seven seals. And those seven seals prove their right and their ability to pay the price. So I have a picture for you there, what it would look like. The title deed would have these seals, and they were wax seals. But if you didn't meet the requirements of that seal, you couldn't loose that seal. But there were seven requirements. Now, there's probably a study in those seven seals that Jesus broke. But what I want to say is that as you think about these seven seals, symbolically in the Bible, the number seven is the number of perfection. So when you think of the seven seals, think about the fact that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the requirements to redeem the world, to redeem you and I. So who's worthy to open the seven seals and redeem the earth? And that was the question posed by the strong angel in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. And the reality is, uh, there was a deafening silence. No one spoke up. No one could redeem the earth. And so John, being a man who cares about the plans of God, cares about the earth because he's God's chosen person, he weeps bitterly. But before we get there, I want to point out that no man under heaven, uh, above heaven, under the earth, no person that's ever existed aside from Jesus Christ is able to redeem himself. You cannot redeem yourself, let alone the entire earth. But Jesus Christ has redeemed each one of us, and he has redeemed the earth. So John weeps bitterly because of this deafening silence, because there's no one to redeem the earth from the fall that happened in Genesis 3. The world is under Satan's authority, and the result of that we're seeing today, sickness, sorrow, suffering, and death. But in the midst of his sorrow, one of the 24 elders approaches John, lays his hand on him and says, do not weep 
Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's triumphed. So John turns, because he's been told there's a lion. Behold the lion. And he turns to look for the lion. And what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb that has been slain. I call it the roaring lamb. And so Jesus, the roaring lamb, he, he speaks with authority and he dies with passion for the one whom he loves. And so Jesus Christ, verse 7, redeems the earth. He's the kinsman redeemer that the Old Testament was over and over and over again talking about. He exercises his right to reclaim what was lost at the fall since he paid the price for sin. Now, verse 8, and I think this is where it takes a, a turning point, because all of a sudden, verse 8 says, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. These four living creatures described last week in the throne room that have the face of an eagle, the face of a man, the, the, the body and face, the likeness of an oxen, and, and then also the uh, eagle. Wait, eagle, lamb, oxen. What am I missing? Oh, uh, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so everyone in the throne room freely responds and they fall down before the lamb. Everyone humbles themselves. Now, notice what they're carrying. Verse 9. They each had a musical instrument. Uh, verse 9 says, uh, they sang a new song. But he says, they fell down before the Lamb in verse 8, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have been, excuse me, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So in verse 9, we see that they have musical instruments, they're harps. Now that may be where we get our idea. Uh, from Looney Tunes and from other places that we're going to sit on a cloud, we're going to strum a harp. And that's what heaven's going to be like. But it seems to me here, not only do they have harps, but they also humble themselves. And they also have something that is kind of interesting, incense. They have golden bowls full of incense. And so it's interesting because if you look at what incense is a picture of in the Old Testament, it's actually a picture of prayer. Everyone raises up prayer before his throne but whose prayers are they well verse 8 says they have golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints now who are saints now we get this idea that saints are uh, kind of kept alive or or remembered by either a plaque on the end of a pew maybe that's your experience or saints are people that have died Saints are people that, in, in the Catholic tradition, I think, that, that have been remembered for the, uh, performing a miracle or having a godly lifestyle. And many times, saints are uh, represented in stained glass in older churches. You have the apostles, and you have 
the saints of old and people that Jesus healed are saints and they're they're kind of immortalized in stained glass. Um, And at the same time, what the Bible teaches our saints are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So you and I, biblically, no matter who you are, no matter how many people have seen you, no matter what authority you have or don't have, you are a saint because of what Christ has done. Now, let that sink in. But then, so he, they have musical instruments. They're ready to praise. They're ready to play. So for you guys that want to be able to play a guitar or an instrument, you feel like you've been tone deaf or enable your whole life, uh, I think heaven, you're going to be able to play an instrument. You're going to be unhindered from your uh, inability. Uh, you'll be able to play. But then these bowls full of incense, these men, these 24 elders, we kind of talked about how they represent the 12 tribes of Israel, but also the 12 uh, apostles. And they represent us before the throne room. But if you turn with me to Exodus chapter 30, in the law, the priests were to have this altar of incense. And this altar had a fire burning, and on that fire they would lay incense. And the incense was a very specific incense. It wasn't essential oils, although many of the the ingredients to this incense, you can find them in essential oils. But in Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, he tells the, the priest, he tells Moses, he says, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of a acacia wood, a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay its top and its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold around it. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they will be holders for the poles which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where I will meet you. So it's outside of the veil that was rent at Jesus' death. And I have there for you a picture of the altar of incense on the bottom right of the screen. So then it says, Aaron shall burn on its on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps he shall burn incense on it and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations so this is something that would be burned perpetually continually he says you shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering nor shall you pour a drink offering on it And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So this altar is set apart for one purpose, and that is to burn incense continually. It will never stop. And the atonement will be made once a year on the horns of the altar, the blood of the bull. And so at the same time, It's not really, this passage in Revelation is not about the table. It's not about the altar. It's actually about 
what's being burnt on it, the incense. Revelation 5 says that the incense represents the prayers of the saints. And so before the New Testament, where we were allowed to pray straight into the Holy of Holies because the veil has been torn because of what Jesus has done, there was this picture in the Old Testament of prayer continually going up before the Lord outside of the veil. So fast forward in Exodus 30 to chapter, excuse me, verse 34. And the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. Then he gives him the ingredients. I'm going to butcher the names. Stockte, Ancha, and Galbanum. And pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There's a whole study that could go into what those spices are and what they represent. But there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine, put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, or I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you, but as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. So only for God. Now think about this. What's being offered on this altar of incense is the prayers of the people and you prepare it in a very specific way. It has a specific aroma, but they would take these spices and they would drop them on the hot coals. Think of that in the context of one of the churches we talked about where Jesus said, you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And I was thinking about that when we talk about this being a representation of prayer this week. How often do I throw up prayer? And we are God's given us grace where we can pray anytime, anywhere. And yet I wonder how cold my prayer is, how lack of passion I have for the things I'm praying for, and how the incense, this, these, this mixture of spices would be ground into powder. You ever thought about the times that in your life you've had so much pressure on yourself that you are ground to powder and, and because of that, you burn for prayer for the Lord. He takes that powder, that, that spice, and he drops it on fire. And the temperature that is so hot that it burns causes there to be the smoke that raises before the presence of the Lord. That's prayer. So if you're wondering why God is continually allowing heat and crushing in your life, it's to produce prayer that is to be an incense before the throne of God, which, by the way, this, you ever burned incense? It's a sweet aroma. It's something you enjoy. It's like our little uh, Glade plug-ins, except it's, it's burning. It's producing this smoke that smells amazing. And so Jesus is doing that very same thing in us, and this prayer is meant to not go to people. It's meant only for him. It's meant between you and him. Many times we're squeezed by life. Many times we experience things. And the first response we have because of the day and age that we live in, we want to talk about with someone else. And I would encourage you this week as you're being crushed and experiencing these things that, that drive you insane, take them to him. He wants to hear about it from you. It's meant only for him. Matthew chapter 6 uh, he, he says, when you pray, don't go pray out in public like the, gent like the priests do and the, the scribes and Pharisees. He says, come in your closet 
close the door and speak about it with me alone. And your father who hears in secret will reward you openly. So all of this, this, this incense is meant wholly and solely for God in Exodus 30. And here we have in the New Testament, these men who are men of authority, men of representation of the nation. What, what are they doing? They, they say, worthy are you, Lord. And they, they bow down. He, God doesn't push these men down. They see Jesus Christ resurrected in all of his glory, and they cannot help but fall down and worship at his feet. It's a natural response. They have harps ready to worship. They have incense with the prayers of the saints before the throne, and they sing. Men singing gloriously, powerfully, And what do they sing? This song of praise and confession and adoration. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's their response. And so as they're singing this, I want to talk first about prayer just a little bit more. Think about this incense, Luke chapter 1, verse 9. The, the father of the, the John the Baptist, he's, it's, it's, it's his turn. And he goes into the, he gets a word from the Lord as he's burning incense. He's praying to the Lord. Psalm 141, verse 2 compares prayer directly to incense burning before the throne. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ now perpetually, just like the incense being burned, makes intercession for us continually at God's right hand, no longer outside of the veil, but he takes what we pray to him and he brings it up as incense before the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Again, the incense is, is rising up before the throne of God without ceasing. And he goes on in Thessalonians, Paul does, to say, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, to give thanks in all things and to pray without ceasing. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus, our high priest, is now able to save those who come to the Father through Jesus. So prayer is an offering to the Lord, number one. It's an offering. It's just something we burn up. You know what happens to things that you burn? You can't use them for anything else. They're burnt. But then prayer is also, I want to point this out, it's heard in heaven. Every prayer you have ever prayed, God hears and he answers. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's not yet. Wait. But those prayers are also a pleasing aroma. God enjoys hearing your prayers. All of them, because it's expressing dependence upon him. So think about the the major prayer that we always must pray when we pray anything. Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this, what we're seeing is these, these prayers in the incense bowls going up before the Lord. He's getting ready to answer those prayers specifically. Anything that's been prayed, not my will, Lord's, but yours be fulfilled. Your kingdom come. It's not just a arbitrary, uh, it's a literal prayer. His kingdom is going to come. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will, your will, God, be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is his will being done right now? Yes. And I would also say, absolutely not. And so we see the culmination of this prayer in the throne room in Revelation. And we'll get to the point where his perfect will will be fulfilled on this earth when he sets up his earthly throne. But before we get there, I want to quote this guy, Richard Chenevich's trench. He said, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. How often do we pray, Lord, will you do this thing? Um, But he says, but getting God's will done on earth. It's not overcoming God's reluctance to answer, but it's actually laying hold of God's willingness to answer when we pray according to his will. And so um, they sing a new song. Revelation chapter 5 verse 2 the strong angel says, who is worthy? He, he's like the town crier. One if by land, two if by sea. But he says, who is worthy? And he's, he's raising the question, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because all of earth and heaven are waiting to see who's going to answer. And then everyone in heaven responds in chapter 5, verse 9, you are worthy. You are worthy. Why? Because you were slain. Why? Because you redeemed us to God with your blood. Uh, Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about that's been redeemed? People from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. This isn't the people of Israel. This is the church. This is the assembly of godly people that have been called out of ungodliness, called out of the world, and into his kingdom. Only the church can sing this song because it is only the true church that has been redeemed out of the world from every tribe, not just the 12 tribes, every language, every people, and every nation. So I believe, according to my understanding of Revelation, that this is the church that has been raptured, brought into heaven, is seeing this heavenly scene, joining in the heavenly chorus, and then they're singing worthy. Right before chapter 6, we go into this great tribulation period where the restraining that's going on in the world right now, because of our presence, because of us being filled with the Holy Spirit, will be taken away, and you'll see what it's like when there's no longer any Christians having any influence in our culture and around the world. He's worthy because he was slain. He's worthy because he's redeemed us to God with his blood. He's worthy because he's made us slaves. We were slaves to sin, and he's going to make us into kings and priests to God. We're going to rule and reign. We're going to represent God to man and man to God. Only the church can sing this. And I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 40, because I think the psalmist grabbed hold of this idea way before the New Testament. Psalm chapter 40. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song. That's the reason I'm reading this, by the way. It says there in verse 9 that they sing a new song. We're getting ahead of time, by the way. We're getting the score. 
We get to practice. Memorize this new song they sing because we will sing it one day, literally. And so he says, they sing, we sing a new song. I lost my place. I got excited. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the prideful, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they're more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. And then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I proclaim the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. This is Jesus. He didn't withhold it. He says, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backwards and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So this new song that's being sung. So in verse 11, as I was reading this, maybe you see it differently. We, we saw in verse 8, 9, and 10 that there's the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and they all prost- they throw themselves down and they, they sing. But then after that, It says, John looked in verse 11, and he heard the voice of many angels around the throne. He thought it was the four and and then the 24. But the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice. They're still singing. So my question is, has the group grown since the song started? Has this praise magnified or did they think it was a small group? And they started singing and then looked up and realized there was even more than they originally thought. But the idea in verse 11 is that the amount of angels and principalities and those in the presence of the throne singing this song are a great innumerable amount. Think about that in context of Abraham obtaining the promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and all the nations of the earth are going to follow me because of you. And I will make your descendants 
We know this wasn't necessarily just physical descendants as the sands on the seashore, innumerable in number. And here we are in the throne room of God and they're singing this song. There are thousands of thousands and 10,000s times 10,000s singing with a loud voice this same chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Who is worthy? Jesus is worthy. And every creature which is in heaven, verse 13, and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Here we have the one who sits on the throne, not really described, and the lamb. So all of these praises are going to the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, but also to the lamb who sits at his right hand. So making God the Father and Jesus equal. I love this because, again, the New Testament over and over says Jesus is God. It doesn't matter what man says. The New Testament makes him equal with God, making him God himself. And then the four living creatures said, so be it. Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So who's worthy? Jesus Christ is worthy. What are they saying he's worthy of? Receiving power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Now, wait a minute. Does, does Jesus need power? Does he need riches, wisdom? Does he need strength or honor or glory or blessing? No, he's the source of those. So what is he getting at here? Where do these things come from? James chapter 1, verse 17 says that he's the giver of all good gifts. They all come down from the Father of lights in which is no shadow of turning or variation. He doesn't change. Does he need all of these things back to keep going? No, he gives them to us so that we can use them to do his will. He's worthy of us giving him back what he gives us. My question for you, and it's a question for myself that I've been going over this week, do we need to wait until heaven to start practicing what they're already doing in heaven? Do we need to wait till heaven to give God power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing that he's given us? Or can we start doing it now? What can we give to God? So my question for you, a devotional thought maybe, but I think it's very poignant, is has God given you power or influence? Has he given you riches? Has he given you wisdom? Has he given you strength? Has he given you honor in the place that you live or in your family? Has he given you glory in some ways? Has he blessed you? Has he given you blessing? Are you willing to give it back to him? Are you using those things that he's given you for his purposes? In Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to turn there real quick. 
in verse 25. Jesus says this to his disciples. Whoever desires to save, or I would insert the word keep his life, will lose it. But whoever loses or gives up his life for Jesus' sake will actually find it, or I would insert gain it. So if keeping our life and gaining our life is in giving it up, my question is, what is your life and what are you giving? And I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about the resources, everything, your abilities, your time, your, your talents, your energy. Uh, what was the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, your heart and your soul and mind and strength are all gifts from God. So Jesus says, what are you going to use those things I've given you? So in the heavenly scene, we have four cherubim, the most powerful of all the heavenly hosts. We have the 24 elders who are, have been made kings on thrones and given uh, even crowns. We have an innumerable angels that are no need to argue, more powerful than human beings. We have every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea. And while in his presence, their only response when Jesus says, I can redeem the earth, is to proclaim loudly over and over and over again that Jesus is worthy of receiving all that we have to give. If you got something, give it to Jesus. And so you and I might say he's worthy, with our lips. But my question is, do we actually give him what heaven proclaims he's worthy of? We might say, Jesus is worthy of everything I have to give. But my question is, do you live that out practically? And I will confess, hopefully to lead in confession, that I, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't. And I want him to change that in me. So what can we give to God? That's the same question, right? Now, we live in a very special time where God is giving us the opportunity because of all of the things that we normally add to our life that aren't essential, to use a term, to maybe reconsider and possibly even consider resetting our priorities. I don't know about you, I've spent a lot of time thinking about priorities lately but we can reset them based on this heavenly scene that God has allowed us to see through the eyes of John, based on an eternal perspective. We're finding that a lot of what we consider and give our lives to, that even blood, sweat, and tears to, can be taken away overnight. Not essential. Even according to, apparently, the government and the CDC. But moving forward, my question and my challenge for you is, will you consider that Jesus Christ might actually be more worthy of all you have to give than lesser and more temporary things? Notice what it says in verse 8 and 14, that, that the angels, the, the four living creatures, and the elders willingly fell down. There was no one pushing them. And I would submit to you that Jesus will not force you to make him your number one priority. He won't. You have to make that decision on your own. And maybe you have. And if you have, I'm thankful for that because the reality is God is doing some pretty amazing things uh, through his people in this day and age that we live in right now. 
People are using their free time. People are using their cars. People are giving food away. People that have a surplus in finances, they're, they're making sure that the people that don't have some. And they're experiencing the love of Jesus through people that are generous. So as we ponder this question, and as we consider that Jesus, according to heaven and all of its hosts and all the people in heaven, they're all saying and proclaiming he's worthy, my question is, are you willing? Are you willing to not only say he's worthy, but live like it? So we're going to take communion this morning, and I want to point out how communion is actually in our passage today. So hopefully at home, you've got your elements. And uh, for the few of you here, the elements are on the counter in the back. Go ahead and grab them. Uh, there's, there's a cup of grape juice, and there's also a cracker. I'm going to leave mine right here. It's so lonely on this table all by itself. But I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, where Paul leads his disciples, excuse me, the, the Christian church there in Corinth. He, he gives them an opportunity and he explains what communion is supposed to look like because they had it wrong. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, as we go through communion here, as you guys spend a little bit of time passing it out, it's probably more like the original communion where Jesus has his disciples in the upper room. They're doing what they normally do. They're eating the, the Passover feast. And then Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So Paul's saying, I'm a partaker. And I'm saying, as a disciple, I'm also a partaker. So what I deliver to you, I've also received. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. So you got the bread in your hand. And when he gave thanks for it, he broke it and he said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I want to go back to Revelation 5 and verse 9, where their song says, you are worthy to open the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, pointing to his brokenness, our bread broken for us. And so, Father, we thank you for your son's broken body on the cross Marred beyond recognition, Isaiah says, uh, beat, bruised, just completely dismembered, not dismembered, but just brutally beaten and nailed to the cross and broken so that we could have life. So, Father, we thank you for the bread of life that we partake. In Jesus' name, amen. But then in verse 25 and 1 Corinthians 11, in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, sorry about the chewing noises. That's not going to be the same. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it to remember me. And so Revelation 5 verse 9 he says, you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe 
and tongue and people and nation. And so until this is fulfilled, we do this as a practice to remember him until he comes as he promised. So Lord Jesus, we remember you until the day where we sing along with heaven. We no longer remember you. We see you face to face as you are. And as you are, we will also be because of your blood, because of your body being broken. You've done things that we don't even know about yet to make it possible to redeem the earth and us as human beings and to build your church and your kingdom. So until then, we raise our glass and we thank you. Thank you for making us kings and priests to you. And thank you for doing it all just because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. And then he finishes in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, look at that word, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes by taking communion. We're proclaiming to our family that's sitting in the room with you right now. We're proclaiming to ourselves, I'm not king, Jesus is. And we're proclaiming that this kingdom that we have the opportunity to live for is a real physical kingdom one day. Until then, we proclaim it. And in this song, that's what they do. They proclaim the kingdom by saying, you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So, Father, thank you for the truths in your word that cause us to focus our attention off of the world and its problems and the trials and the tribulations. Thank you for three weeks to fix our attention on Jesus and his throne room, all that they are proclaiming in that throne room that has already been accomplished on our behalf and on behalf of your glory. We look forward to that kingdom. We look forward to all things being made new. We look forward to your kingdom coming to earth and being fulfilled as you said it would when you came in your first coming. We look forward to you making all things right, making all things new, making justice reign instead of corruption. But until then, Lord, we say, come quickly, Lord. We, we, we just want to be with you. This world is hard. But until then, use us as your kings and priests to represent your kingdom well to represent people well, to point them to your throne room so that they can come and join the chorus with us. We love you, Lord, and as we sing this last song, we just pray, be glorified in our words, be glorified in our submission to you, be glorified as we give what you are worthy of to you. In Jesus' name, amen.